Thank you very much, Paraga. Good morning, everybody. Uh, yesterday, Paraga, in his very, very hard, I think quite hard-hitting talk in some ways, uh, Paraga re- referred to the very early days of the Buddhist Sangha, which is quite interesting because when I, I didn't know what Paraga was going to talk about, but when I knew this talk was coming up, that was immediately that came into my mind, the very early days of the spiritual community, and very similar response to that that, that Paraga has, which just shows you the sort of magic of the spiritual community. We haven't talked about that at all, but uh, we were in tune uh, in quite a different way. This often happens within the Sangha. Uh, you don't see anybody, see other people, but you find that your thinking and your intuition and your feeling about the Dharma is resonating with people far away. Very interesting. And Paraga communicated something of the energy and vitality, if you like, the electricity of the early spiritual community. Actually, that vitality, energy and electricity went on uh, throughout the whole of the Buddha's life. But it seems particularly strong in the very early days, this tremendous sort of energy and creativity. So why? Why was that? Well, we have to go back to enlightenment itself to get a feel for that, at least try to see into the Buddha's enlightenment using the oldest texts. There are different descriptions that the Buddha gives of his enlightenment, but they all feature, if you like, one essential fact The Buddha's enlightenment, his bodhi, his awakening, his uh, lightening up, his aloka, his opening of the eye, his opening of the the chakshu, uh, is always described as a seeing into the very depths of his own and the world's, other people's conditioning. A seeing into the very depths, not just seeing with just one part of himself, not just a thought, but seeing, even seeing, and it's just a metaphor, doesn't communicate it really. He's seeing, if you like, with his whole being, experiencing with his whole being, the very heart of what binds us, what limits us, what traps us, what trapped him. At, root, at the root of this, of course, is a whole set of deep forces. They're given different names. Uh, one of, perhaps one of the most uh, evocative of, of the deep forces that the Buddha sees through and destroys are what are known as the Ashravas, Asavas in Pali, the Ashravas, which can be translated as something like the floods, even the inner poisonous floods that just drive us along. And there's different sets of arch rivers, these floods. And one of the most basic of all is craving. Krishna, thirst. Not just for things and for people, but for certainty, for being, for existence for a fixed and permanent way of being. There's a flood in us called Trishna that just wants this fixed, 
permanent state of being, which is, of course, completely impossible. Completely impossible, because life cannot be fixed and certain. It is deeply, profoundly uncertain. It is profoundly changeable and insecure. It's even illusory. Right now we think that maybe we're having a vivid experience of sitting in here, listening to a Dharma talk, and me, I'm having an experience of speaking to you. It's quite a, an intense situation, certainly for me. In a few minutes' time, it will have gone. It's illusory. It passes. What all there is is a constantly arising and flowing on. There's just constant change and becoming, ever changing. But we try to fix this, try to create certainty in something that is profoundly uncertain. So, as well as craving, there is ignorance, avidya, unknowing, anti-knowing, an unwillingness to know, to see, to wake up to what is really going on, to the fact of the ever-changing. We don't want to know about that. And so there is also aversion, even hatred at anything, any fact, any experience, any new experience that threatens our unknowing, our desire for certainty. Uh, uh, our desire to fix and to control. And so there is fear. This is another flood. A very deeply held fear. Even a horror of the reality. The truth of the ever-changing. The impermanent. The impermanent reality that is ever-present. The Buddha saw right into this. Saw through it. And so destroyed those deep, powerfully, deeply held floods, those forces that drive us, that drive life, that entrap us and that cause us to entrap others. For we don't just entrap ourselves, we entrap others as well. You know, that desire to keep things fixed, well we do that to other people. We hold other people down. Or the Buddha is liberated from all this. Sometimes it's said that the Buddha is liberated from birth and death. Birth and death. Liberated into the deathless. The amata, the amrita. The deathless. What an amazing phrase. The deathless. The deathless isn't some heaven where Buddhas go and hang out. What that phrase the deathless is getting at is that the Buddha no longer sees life in terms of birth and death. That framework, that structure of life, that view of life, the gaining of birth, the clinging to life and loss at death, that has been completely exploded. That framework has been completely exploded. So there is the deathless. And what that also means is freedom. 
very early on, the Buddha characterised the seeing through, the enlightenment, the deathless, as liberation, freedom, vimoksha, vimukti. And the old texts describe the Buddha after the seeing through and the destruction of the forces of ignorance and so on, the old texts describe the Buddha as seated for days, for weeks, in one posture, utterly absorbed in the bliss of liberation. The, the, the Vimukti Sukha, or Sukha Vimoksha, the bliss of liberation, just sitting there in deep, inconceivable pleasure, ecstasy, his consciousness, well, you can't really call it consciousness, the Buddha is beyond even the, that kind of label, but let's call it a consciousness, his mind, his being, is utterly without boundary, utterly without boundary, there's no limitation whatsoever, and that is intensely, deeply pleasurable, blissful, ecstatic, must always remember this about the Buddha's enlightenment, it's bliss, and we all want bliss, we all want that, we all want to get off, don't we, we all want to get off on something ecstatic, of course we do, nothing wrong with that, but the real bliss is going to be when we explode those boundaries. <coughs> so, speaking like this, no wonder there was so much energy, so much vitality in the early Sangha. If the teacher, the Buddha, has dissolved, broken, even smashed every last bond, every restriction, well, there's going to be a tremendous release of energy. And, and this language of, of destruction, by the way, is very, very strong in early Buddhism. There's that famous verse in the Dhammapada where it's, it's said to be, in some traditions, the very first verse, the very first utterance after the Enlightenment. The Buddha talks about breaking the house of conditioned existence, splitting the ridgepole of the house and destroying the creator of the prison. So no wonder that there was an unleashing of energy, very pure, free-flowing energy. It's very important to remember this when we speak of manifesting compassion in the world. It's very important because we can so easily think of compassion as something that will weigh us down, that will weigh us down as we contemplate all the very terrible <coughs> sufferings that afflict this world. And when you look, there are so very, very many sufferings. And if we let them in, if we let them touch us, we can all too easily feel weighed down, even feel helpless and uncertain, doubtful about what we can do, about what we should do, about what to do. And then we just feel bad, depotentiated. This has nothing to do with the Buddha's compassion. Nothing to do with the Buddha's compassion. And the compassion that we need to aspire to and to develop if we're to be followers of the Buddha. The Buddha's compassion is free-flowing. It's free-flowing energy. Even blissful energy. Irrepressible energy. That's the Buddha's compassion. 
is the compassion of all the great enlightened ones. There's uh, Padmasambhava is sometimes described as the lightning bolt of compassion. Imagine a lightning bolt of compassion coming at you. So how is that? Why is that? It's not just because of the liberation that the Buddha enjoys, always enjoys. It's because of the way he sees others. The way he sees us. Because the Buddha is free of those deep inner poison drives, those restrictions that entrap us and others, he's free to see. Free to see us as we really are. He's liberated from all the tired ways in which we can see one another. He doesn't see in a tired way. The Buddha's vision of others is always fresh, always new, always alive. Paraga described yesterday that famous defining vision the Buddha had after his enlightenment. Actually, it's an essential element of the enlightenment. It's said that the Buddha looked with his Buddha eye on the world, on beings, on us. The Buddha eye, the Buddha vision. That little detail is extraordinarily important. He's not looking with any human eye. He's not even looking with the eye of meditation. It's the eye of supreme enlightenment looking at us. Which means that you can't really put into words what he's seeing because enlightenment if you see with the Buddha eye, if you could see what the Buddha saw with the Buddha eye, you couldn't put that into words. It would be utterly inconceivable. So he's seeing us, seeing living beings with the Buddha eye. And in fact, all the Buddha can really revert to, to describe this, is metaphor. He sees life. He sees living beings. He sees us as a great vast, wild, beautiful lotus lake, maybe lotus ocean, of red and white and blue lotuses. This is so important to really get the the metaphor here. If you've been to India and you've seen a lake of lotuses in the wild, it is something extraordinary. It's something extraordinary. It's kind of miraculous. You know, I've seen black, filthy pools, really thick, black, viscous, muddy pools. And there are these strong, vivid, wild, electric, pink lotuses coming out of that muck. And they really are extraordinary. They are luminous and strong. They stand in their strength above the mud almost shocking in their beauty above the slime. In the Buddha's vision, some of those lotuses, of course, are buds that are shut and still in the mud. And yet there are others pushing, thrusting out of the mud into the light, showing, revealing their beauty, their visionary beauty. What he's seeing, of course, is that everybody is a growing being. Everybody, every single person, every single being is a growing being. Every single being has the potential to grow to the highest, to enlightenment itself. All have that potential. Some 
have awoken that potential more than others. And so, of course, the Buddha is seeing that means there are people to communicate his liberating vision to too. But all have the potential. We all have the potential to unfold completely, fully, to enlightenment itself. And that vision, it said, is accompanied, well, what do you, how do you describe it? A particular emotion, a feeling, a mood. Though unfortunately these words are far too, in a way, fleeting to really communicate what was going on. But it's not just a, a vision. There's a, an atmosphere, if you like, in the Buddha's consciousness, which is part of the vision. And in the original Pali, that feeling, emotion, mood, whatever you want to call it, is called anukampa. Anukampa. Which is usually translated as compassion. But literally, it means to quake with, to shake with, to tremble with. Kampati means to shake or to quake or to tremble. Anu means with. Anukampa, to shake with, to tremble with, to shake with. So what's really going on here is that the Buddha's full, complete, actual enlightenment is shaking with, quaking with the potential for enlightenment in all beings. It's in a, in a way he's seeing perhaps himself in all beings. He's seeing enlightenment in all beings, to whatever degree that it's there. Even though people might be very, very far away from it, he is connecting with that, and he trembles with it. He shakes with it. He loves it. So the Buddha's compassion then is not feeling sorrowful at the sufferings of others. The Buddha's compassion is seeing and responding to the strength in others, the energy in others, that longs for freedom, for liberation, that longs to push up out of the swamp, the mire of ignorance. And it's that energy that the Buddha wants to touch and reach and spark off in others. That is the Buddha's compassionate activity. That is the Buddha's compassionate energy. Now this didn't remain a vision, this vision of all beings as being like lotus flowers. Because as soon as he'd had the great vision, uh, immediately the Buddha left the jungle, the forest, around the Bodhi tree, and he just went straight to where he knew there were people. People who he could, he could reach, who he could spark off. I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word teach. I don't think it's about that. I don't think in a way the Buddha does teach. Of course the Buddha is the greatest teacher. But it's about communication. It's about getting into communication. It's anukampa. It's about tuning in to others. To where they are. To their exact state. Tuning in as well to their potential. That's how the Buddha operated. You see it again and again by the way in the Pali Canon. The Buddha attuning himself to others right where they are and then connecting them with the Dharma, with the means to liberation. You see it again and again. His anukampa, his shaking with, if you like, his sympathy is so alive, 
so attuned. And it's interesting to see the Buddha reflecting on why he chose to go and see, meet the five ascetics, because they were the, that's who he thought he'd go and teach, those five ascetics who had accompanied him in that fearsome ascetic period that uh, he followed before his enlightenment. So why did he choose them? Uh, well, he knew them for a start. He knew them very well. They'd lived together. they practiced together for six long years. They had, of course, rejected him when he took some food, when he himself rejected extreme asceticism as a path, when he discovered the middle way. But the Buddha didn't dwell on that. He wasn't interested in, in, in you know, the fact that they rejected him. He didn't think, oh, I won't teach them because... You know, they gave me a hard time. Not interested in that. He reflected, they were very helpful to me. They were very helpful to me. They were friends. They'd been supportive. They'd been generous. They'd supported him in what he was trying to do. So it's interesting the way he kind of notices their potential for enlightenment. It's not some abstract, vague notion of potential. In a way, nothing spiritual is mentioned. He's talking about ordinary human qualities. They helped me. They were kind to me. They were friendly to me. Maybe they will see. Maybe they can see. Because they have ordinary human qualities. So it makes it clear that the potential for enlightenment, liberation from restriction, from suffering, um, that potential for that liberation, as I said, it's nothing abstract. It's not an idea. It's found in ordinary, basic, quintessentially human qualities. If we have ordinary human qualities like friendliness, kindness, clarity, helpfulness, generosity, we have the potential for enlightenment. And we know that the Buddha was able to communicate to those five old friends. They responded. One by one, they became arahants. They themselves became liberated from all bonds, all restriction. We see too the Buddha's free-flowing, compassionate energy in relation to Yasha. Again, Paraga mentioned the Buddha's communication with Yasha. So I want to go back to that. Yasha was the kind of young man who anybody else would think had no spiritual potential whatsoever. I think if we'd met Yasha before he'd met the Buddha, we'd think, what a prat. <laughs> he was the only son of a very wealthy merchant in Benares. So he was thoroughly spoilt. He lived a life of privilege and pleasure. Uh, probably a kind of bling life. A life of parties, of fun, of dalliance. An utterly superficial life. And one night there was a big party in his rooms this big house and there are a troop of courtesans doing what courtesans do 
singing, playing music, dancing, flirting. It all went on long into the night, carousing. And at last they all fell asleep. And then suddenly Yasha was awake in the depths of the night. And there was one single oil lamp flickering. And he had a kind of grotesque vision. He saw all the courtesans, you know, lying in these really ugly shapes sprawled over their musical instruments, sprawled over their cushions, their clothing undone, and they were snoring. One was sort of snoring away. Another one was kind of muttering in her sleep. Another one kind of talking in her sleep. And it just disgusted him. The whole sight, but it's not just that sight, it's his whole life. It's his whole life that he's feeling utter disgust towards. And he just looked around and said, I'm living in a charnel ground. I'm living in a charnel ground. This is horrible. This is terrible. And it was so appalling and he felt his whole hair standing on end. He was so horrified really by himself, that he just ran out into the night. And of course we can laugh at Yasha. But you know there's a sense in which our wealthy, highly privileged, Western capitalist, or do you call it post-capitalist existence, is not really so different from Yasha, in a way. Let's just look at it, look at us. Well, we do have money. We might not have as much as we would like, but compared with some parts of the world, we are very wealthy. We do have abundant food. We have good health and wonderfully free health services. We can regulate our diet in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. We can go on holidays. We can travel. We can have endless entertainment and we can get the latest toys, the latest iPod, the latest iPad, the latest iPhone. And there are choices, so many choices. We could be so brilliant, couldn't we? We could be so, we could really be that special one. But there is something so utterly grotesque about all this. We have never had it so good, in a way, and yet we are and we remain deeply, profoundly dissatisfied. Sometimes people can think that the new toy, the new girlfriend, or the new boyfriend, or that holiday, or that course, or that class, will fix it. But it won't, because the fact is, it's all just covering over the actual existential reality. Yasha describes his room, his life, as a charnel ground, a place of death. He sees its utter impermanence and emptiness and realises that he has to do something. 
and we need to realise it as well. The fact is, whatever we possess, whatever we have, will never address our actual situation. We are born, we live, we die. And the time of our dying is uncertain. So what will we do now with this precious, wonderful thing we call our life? Sometimes people want to know why the Tree Ratna community doesn't do more direct, hands-on social work. Helping the homeless, the sick, the hungry, the addicted and so on. And of course... There are many individuals within our community who are employed in all sorts of social services of various kinds. It's very impressive to see the experiences of many people in those fields and to hear the way they practice the Dharma in those fields. And that's a very wonderful thing. And sometimes people even wonder if compassion, the way it trots off our lips, is just a word for us with actually no reality. But there is another kind of casualty in this world. There aren't just casualties of our society, there are existential casualties. People who suffer because they long for meaning. They suffer because they long to find meaning. They want to live for meaning. There are many more of these people than we realise. And we need to connect with these people. We need to reach them. We need to touch them. Yasha was one of these people. Seeing the scene in his room, he just ran out into the night, into the dark, just repeating that phrase. This is horrible. This is terrible. He didn't know where he was going, he just ran out in an absolute panic sometimes it's like that for people it's like that for people they're panicking because they know it's awful but they don't know what to do about it somehow Yasha found himself in parkland under trees, still crying out this is horrible this is terrible and suddenly Out of the darkness, a voice said, This is not horrible. This is not terrible. And Yasha, just hearing those words, immediately became calm. Immediately felt no fear. Immediately was introduced to another state of consciousness. And he walked to where the voice was coming from and of course he found the Buddha seated there and they just started talking there isn't in a way a lot said about what they talked about I sometimes think that that amazing line where the Buddha just says this is not horrible this is not terrible that that is the communication The Buddha is just speaking from his enlightenment, just in that word, this. He's introducing Yasha directly to the enlightened state, giving him a vision of the enlightened state. But they did have a very deep conversation, a very deep communication. 
and the Buddha opened up the way things are for Yasha eventually Yasha becomes himself an enlightened one an arahant in a very short space of time just while they're sitting there a very interesting story that goes on again Paraga mentioned this of course mum and dad Yasha's mum and dad suddenly realised he was he's disappeared and went searching for him you know you can imagine you know Yasha's mum saying go on go out and get him go and find him to her husband it does seem a bit like that in the text though you know whereas the old dad you know anyway you know how these things go and it's interesting the Buddha notices that uh, Yasha's father is coming but he also knows that if Yasha fa- Yasha's father comes too soon Yasha's spiritual growth will be interrupted and he creates a kind of protective space around Yasha so that he disappears that's another way the Buddha's compassion works he creates environments atmospheres supportive atmospheres in which people can practice that's what the Sangha does this is a kind of space if you like a retreat centre is a space a protective space where you can grow anyway Yasha becomes enlightened becomes liberated from the bonds and as Paraga told us yesterday after Yasha became enlightened the word went around among his friends about what had happened and people were energised and excited energised by the Buddha's communication the Buddha's teaching until eventually I think there were just over 60 enlightened disciples with the Buddha in their centre all sitting there in the deer park at Sarnath and you've got to remember that you know, you know, they, you, when you read the text there's lots of back reading that goes on and they all get nice robes and shave their heads and other scholars say no not like that yes they all became as it were you know bhikkhus they all became full timers but they would have just discoloured their ordinary clothes you know they wouldn't have looked like a neat gathering in neatly pressed robes they would have just discoloured what they had it's not some sort of official ecclesiastic organisation the Buddha is kind of operating in some senses in the margins in a kind of liminal realm if you like that's where all the creativity happens but the Buddha brought those disciples together and he told them I am liberated from all bonds all fetters whether human or divine you are liberated from all fetters whether human or divine divine go forth for the welfare and the happiness of the people the many people teach the Dhamma that is good at the beginning good in the middle and good at the end that phrase for the welfare and the happiness of the people the many people Bahujan Hitai Bahujan Sukhai Bahujan Hitai Bahujan Sukhai Hitai welfare Sukhai happiness and this word Bahujan is very interesting very hard to really get the feeling for this word it's translated as the people or the many people or the many folk but it's actually a very pointed term it's almost a socio-political term 
It's in contrast to caste. Indian society even then was stratified by caste. The Buddha doesn't say, go to your caste. Go to the castes to communicate the Dharma. Go to the people. Bahujin is a term which is summoning up the whole of the people. Even now in, in modern India, political, there are political parties who call themselves the Bahujan. And it's definitely a statement against caste and graded inequality. So it's, this, is a, this is as much a social and political statement as it is a spiritual statement. Go out to anybody and teach the Dharma. Don't look at them in terms of their social group, high, low, whatever. See their potential and communicate the Dharma to them. Now I hope that what you're getting from this is the nature of the Buddha's compassion. The Buddha's compassion is compassion for the deepest sufferings in others, their existential sufferings. And what the Buddha does is rouse people. He wakes them up to their situation and he gives them the tools to do something about it, the tools for liberation. Not that the Buddha ignored other kinds of suffering, not that he was callous or indifferent to very obvious physical suffering. There's the very famous story of the monk who is terribly sick with dysentery and who's fallen in his own filth. A very serious disease, dysentery. And the monks had just left him because they said he was useless to them now. And when the Buddha saw this, he immediately, he and Ananda, washed him, washed the monk, gave him water, comforted him, made him comfortable on his bed. And the Buddha made it very clear to the other monks that it was a serious fault to neglect such suffering in their community. But his language is so strong. Monks, you have no father, no mother to look after you. If you do not look after one another, who, I ask, will look after you? So, of course, the Buddha responded immediately to such situations as this, as we must do. But the Buddha wants us to get hold of the Dharma, to see the Dharma and follow the Dharma for liberation because the Buddha knows that in the end all suffering is at root an existential, a spiritual issue, a spiritual problem. Here at Padmaloka, uh, we, on our different retreats, especially when the, the retreats where people are training for ordination, people tell their life stories. They tell it from perhaps the point of view of ethics or friendship or spiritual turning points. Um, they describe how they came to the Dharma. And I've just been on a retreat, actually, an order retreat, the Kalyana Mitra retreat, where order members are training to become Kalyana Mitras, spiritual friends. And people in our... The idea that we are a kind of monoculture in our movement is so ridiculous because there are so many different kinds of people that make up our community. And some people have lived very colourful lives, very colourful indeed. 
uh, which have involved a lot of suffering, even violence, violence that they've done themselves, addiction, monotony, criminality, dullness. And it's quite clear in these life stories, if these people had not found the Dharma, found a real path based on the way things are, there would have been real catastrophe in their lives. That's very clear. It's so obvious listening to some of these stories that if people hadn't found the Dharma, they'd either be dead or mad. Sangharachita said this himself famously on one occasion. He was giving a, a talk, I think, and he said people sometimes ask him what he would have done if he hadn't become a Buddhist. And people often sit back thinking, oh, you know, I would have been a writer, I would have been a this or a that. And he just said, I would have gone mad. I would have gone mad if I hadn't found the Dharma because the forces, the polarities in his being were such that they would have just destroyed him. He needed something much bigger than that, the Dharma. In the Pali texts, you get this phrase where it says, people are perishing because they do not hear the Dharma. People are perishing. People are wasting because they're not hearing the Dharma. Very strong language. So it's clear from this that the Dharma, Buddhism, is not some luxury item, some add-on to life. It's not an app for relaxation. The Dharma is addressing our very existence, our fundamentals, and the fundamentals of life, the sufferings of life. So do you see that? Do you get that? When you do the mindfulness of breathing, when you do the metabhavna, do you see that these very practices will liberate you completely? And if you live like, like them, you will liberate others. When you study a Buddhist text, do you know that seeing into the meaning of a single phrase will liberate you and it will liberate others. Let me just listen. Just listen to this with that in mind, with that thought in mind. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind and produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, Suffering follows as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox, drawing the cart. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind and produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. Those who entertain such thoughts as he abused me, he beat me, he conquered me, he robbed me, will not steal their hatred. Those who do not entertain such thoughts as he abused me, he beat me, he conquered me, he robbed me, will steal their hatred. Not by hatred are hatreds ever pacified here in the world, they are pacified by love. This is the eternal law. Others do not realise that we are all heading for death. Those who do realise it 
will end their quarrels. That, you know, those verses are the lightning bolt of compassion. The Buddha's wisdom verses said with compassion, uh, if we really got them, if we lived by them, there would be revolution. Revolution. Revolution in the base, as the Yogacara called it. That's B-A-S-E, not B-A-S-S. For the reggae enthusiasts among you. Revelation, revolution in the base, the Ashraya Paravriti, the deep turning around in the deepest seat of consciousness. If we really heard verses like that, if we really meditated on them, lived by them, there would be revolution in the base. And revolution in the world. Because if we have such a revolution in the base, we would come together with others and work together with others. Compassion is never about being some solitary saviour hero. Buddha wasn't interested in that at all. The Buddha's compassion, his anukampa, his shaking with, his quaking with, created sangha. Spiritual community, even a new society, a new world, a new community characterised by that anukampa, that shaking with. Sangharachita says when you go for refuge to the sangha, you go for refuge from mere contact, social contact to communication to communication, which he describes as a vital mutual responsiveness. A vital mutual responsiveness. A completely honest and harmonious exploration of the Dharma together, in which you dissolve the distinction between, the, between those more experienced and those less experienced. You are just in the magic of the Dharma, responsive, vitally responsive, to one another and you want that you can't help but that flows out to others that's a revolution that's the Dhamma revolution and we so badly need it I mean just look at it look at the mess of rampant greed our society is so unbearably corrupt look at our leaders look at them people with responsibility for this country. Look at those professional politicians playing populist card after populist card whilst the people seem to sink down under the weight of their toys and entertainments into inertia. If we're going to manifest compassion, then let's engage with the Dharma. Engage with one another. What people need is people working together in the Dharma. And let's take the Dharma out in as many ways that we can, that we can, that we can imagine. We've hardly started as a community. You know, don't think that the patterns that we have now exhaust what we could do and who we could meet. You know, if you could think, if you think that you can bring something different to our community, some new way, of engaging people in the Dharma, tell us, 
please tell us. Tell the order members in your centre. We need that revolution of the base, of the mind, of consciousness. And we need that, re- that revolution in the world. Just over two weeks ago, there was the 56th anniversary of the resurgence of the Dharma revolution in India. 56 years ago in Nagpur, central India, Dr. Bimrao Ramji Ambedkar took the refuges and precepts from U Chandramani Mahatera, Sangharakshita's preceptor, and then he turned to the crowd of 380,000 people, men and women and children, and he gave them the refuges and precepts plus 22 special vows to keep the refuges and precepts pure. These 380,000 people were from the lowest strata of Indian society. Traditionally orthodox Hindu society deemed them outcast, untouchable. Their touch, even sometimes their very sight, would pollute, ritually pollute, religiously pollute. They were only able to do menial work. They were doomed to a life of poverty and ignorance and utter hopelessness. Dr. Ambedkar, Baba Saheb, as his followers called him, even Bodhisattva Dr. Baba Saheb, from, came from that community. It's an incredible life, his life of sheer effort and toil to raise himself out of the mud to get an education and he worked tirelessly very early on very early on when he was a young lad he started to work for the uplift of that community his community which is about a third of the population of India the Dalits as they're now known Dr Ambedkar worked in trades unionism education, politics he became the first law minister of the government of independent India. He framed the Indian constitution, which of course outlaws untouchability. But Dr. Ambedkar knew very well that though you might outlaw it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't still go on. It still goes on. Very early on in his career, Dr. Ambedkar, Baba Seb, recognised that if there was to be real change for his people and real change in India and non-violent change, non-violent change, if there was to be the annihilation of caste and the annihilation of untouchability, there had to be deep, lasting change. And that meant there had to be mental change, consciousness change, religious change. There needed to be a revolution in the base, a Dharma revolution. And that led him to the Dharma. It led him to the Buddha. Very early on in his life, the Buddha, Dr. Ambedkar, regarded the Buddha as one of his teachers because the Buddha was the supreme example of a man, a man, not a god, a man of wisdom and compassion. A man who had liberated himself 
Moreover, a man who was anti-caste, who attacked the caste system, who attacked inequality, who had a social critique, who was profoundly non-superstitious, non-theistic, and who had a vision of the necessity of individual human effort, individual responsibility, individual growth and change. So that's why Dr. Ambedkar went for refuge to the Buddha. He realised that only if people changed their minds, their hearts, their consciousness, would there be lasting revolution. It's amazing reading his great conversion speech. It has been translated into English, but I I gather the Marathi or the Hindi is extremely heartfelt and powerful. And in that speech he talked a lot about energy, Energy, the importance of energy, of having energy in your life. And he says, energy comes when you know that your individual efforts will bear real fruit. That's impossible in the caste system, impossible for that community, the untouchable community in the caste system. Their efforts would not bring fruit. fruit. They were virtually slaves of the higher castes. In Buddhism, in the Buddha Dharma, Baba Seb said, you breathe in an atmosphere of freedom. You breathe in an atmosphere where your effort, if you get hold of your life, and your effort, your fruits, the fruits will come. The fruits will happen. If you take hold of your life, take hold of your mind, the fruits will come. And this will give real self-respect self-value, self-worth, dignity, dignity. So often people suffer amazingly in the modern West from a lack of self-worth, a lack of sort of personal dignity. And often it's because they just don't realise what they have and what they can do. And, of course, we can give this to others, this sense of self-respect, self-worth, through making effort And I remember old Buddhist friends, they died now, they became order members, but they died because they were very old, very good, close friends of mine who were around in the early days of the conversion movement in India. And they described the tremendous feeling, the tremendous energy that was around. At last they were taking their life into their own hands. They were throwing off all fetters. Shackles. It's amazing, you know, that how how what a liberation. This might sound shocking to you, but what a liberation it was to smash the images they had of the old Hindu gods. These images are not for them, sort of quaint Oriental antiquities. These are fascist emblems. They felt this tremendous liberation. There wasn't material improvement at the time. In fact, becoming a Buddhist initially was very difficult for them. In villages, they'd often be boycotted by shopkeepers because they became Buddhist. People would criticise them for taking their life into their own hands. But they said to me, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because I felt free, ecstatic, liberated from hell. And that movement flowed on. It flows on. 
and our own Tri Ratna Buddhist community is a profound part of that movement in India. But the main point I'm really trying to make here, I've been trying to make in this talk, if we are to live the life of compassion, if we're to manifest compassion in the world, we need to wake up to our precious human opportunity. And we need to liberate ourselves through the Dharma. Let's start, if we haven't started it, the revolution in the depths. Let's liberate ourselves from all those inner binds and bonds and floods that keep us down. And then let's use that liberated energy to come together with others, to befriend others who are doing the same thing. Let's let them in. Let's come together with them. Let's work together. Let's create spiritual community ever more vividly. And let's go out to others. Let's go out to all others. Let's develop Anukampa. Let's shake with and quake with and tremble with all others and share whatever experience of the liberating Dharma that we enjoy. Let's live now for the Dhamma revolution, the manifestation of the Buddha's compassion. <laughs>